An Old Maid by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Taylor. An Old Maid An Old Maid Was there ever woman so wise that she could hear the obnoxious title applied to herself without a suppressed sigh? Though few are the old maids who might not have been wives if they had so willed, the sense of incompleteness, of undeveloped capacities, of unfulfilled duties, perforce will cause a passing pang. But who knows Miriam Pleasance feels that the life of an old maid is necessarily dreary, profitless, colorless. And is Miriam an old maid? Damsels in the primrose season of youth, for whom the wedding ring binds in its charm circle the manifold joys of an ideal Elysiumly, mockingly called her so. Happy mothers, about whose necks twine the chubby arms of cherub childhood, keep low and wise the vines that bear such fruit, pityingly call her so. Broken-hearted wives, whose shattered idols prove all clay and ashes, whose pale lips, wreathed in smiles, veil with Spartan heroism, the vulture preying on their souls, indignantly call her so. But mark how men, intellectual, thinking, feeling men, hesitate to apply the ungallant appellation to sweet Miriam. Perhaps they are tongue-tied by that vague charm about her, which half cheats one into the belief that she carries in the vestal bosom some mystical light, the lamp of human love, and lets fall its radiance on the path she treads, on the hearth where she sits, on the face into which she gazes. Certain it is that all are strangely brightened by her presence. Man recognizes the magic of a cheerful influence in woman more quickly and more willingly than the potency of dazzling genius, of commanding worth, or even of enslaving beauty. Thus men, in general, value Miriam's especial gift above the more brilliant endowments of her favored sisters. In stature, Miriam is below medium height, a form not voluptuously rounded nor charmingly fragile, but a neat, compact little figure, supple and light of motion. Not a single feature of her countenance can be termed beautiful, yet the whole face possesses a mobility, a capacity for rapidly varying expression, an indefinable harmony, that produce the effect of beauty. Her white teeth sparkle between flexible lips, 
her black eyes dance and shine through jetty fringes. Her dark hair, fine but not abundant, is knotted with peculiar grace at the back of an admirably balanced head. Her dress is usually of some neutral tint, a silver gray, a delicate fawn, or a soft dove color, lighted up or relieved by a gleam of crimson, or dark blue, or purple ribbons. Then her age. She has passed the season of youth, of summer perhaps, and is verging upon autumn, a rich, mellow autumn, an autumn full of gorgeous tints, an autumn whose forest leaves turn to scarlet and gold without withering, an autumn that makes one think the springtime could hardly have been so beautiful. True, the dewy, evanescent morning freshness is gone, but in its place reigns the more lasting, self-renewed freshness of mental and physical vigor. In a word, Miriam has reached and passed the green ascent of thirty-five and is calmly descending the verdant slope beyond. But life has been all gain to her. She has gathered fruits of knowledge and flowers of beauty and herbs of balm on the way and lost nothing she does not think it well to part with in exchange. We have seldom met with an old maid upon the pages of whose early history there was not some love-tale inscribed, some story of unrequited affection, of betrayed hopes, of love sacrificed to duty, or of the graves untimely snatching away. But, strange to say, there is no love-tale written upon Miriam's book of life, she could never have been numbered among that large class of maidens who, according to Rasselas, think they are in love when, in fact, they are only idle. Her intellect is too highly cultivated, her penetration too acute, her life too active for her to form an attachment through the mere besoin de mire, the longing though often unconscious desire, to be loved and protected, which is the secret spring of half the so-called love matches in the world. A young girl's affections, like graceful tendrils, formed to cling, too often twine themselves around the object nearest and most inviting, with no other vindication save that it was near and invited. seeing that to waste true love on anything is womanly past question. But if Miriam unconsciously admits that love is a grand necessity of existence, she feels that existence has other necessities. To bestow her heart, her judgment must approve the gift, and she has not encountered the being though doubtless such exist, who could win the one with the approval of the other. This is the sole secret of her freedom. 
Had Miriam been thrown upon her own resources to gain a livelihood, her energy of character and her delight in use would have impelled her to fill and dignify some of the few intellectual advocations which women's hands and brains are allowed to grace. Her birth and wealth forbid, yet the current of life with such an organization can never become stagnant. Occupation is enjoyment. Her perceptions are keenly alive to discover the work that is spread for her hands and to do it when found. She religiously believes that there is work, heaven allotted to all, in the great vineyard of the world, and that our work lies just within our grasp, if we will but look for and recognize the task. Labor is worship, says the prophet. Labor is worship, responds every throbbing pulse in Miriam's well-tuned frame. Like the woman of Bethany who poured the perfumed ointment, her humble tribute of love, upon the head of her Lord, she did what she could. What she could? What more could be required of her? Do what we can, as much as we can, all that we can. Oh, how large would be the sum of works of the very humblest, feeblest, poorest, when counted up in the hereafter, if they only did what they could, alas, for the thousand opportunities of ministering and comforting thrown daily in our pathway, while we pass by on the other side through sheer unconcern, through lack of thought rather than lack of heart, will they not rise up to convict us when we render the account of our stewardship in the great day? With such thoughts ever quickening her to action, Miriam takes a lively, never-failing interest in all things around her. No fellow creature is indifferent to her. She regards all with a tender sympathy, a sympathy which breaks unaware through cold conventionalities and fraternizes with beings too seldom recognized as members of the human family towards the sick, the poor, the sad, the suffering in any shape. Her hand is unhesitatingly stretched out. They need no credentials save the stamp of sadness, sickness, poverty, and prompt aid is true aid. She seems endowed with God's special license to console, to translate mysterious sorrows into promised joys, to strengthen the weak, to soften the hard, to reconcile the rebellious. The history of any one day of her life would fill chapters with scenes of anguish, of passion, of hope, of happy consummations that might adorn the pages of a romance. Thus Miriam, the old maid, is not less happy, less useful, less beloved than the wife and the mother whose heart and hands are full of alternate cares and blessings. Those upon whose path of life the smile of Miriam Pleasance shines never speak scornfully of an old maid. We entertain but one fear for Miriam. It is that she will not always bear the vestal title 
around which she has woven such an indescribable charm. End of An Old Maid by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie Read by Kelly Taylor